a particular gift. I don't know that I would call it a spiritual gift. It's not necessarily helpful in pastoral ministry. I have a a gift of being oblivious. Uh, I just miss stuff. Um, Maybe some of you men have a similar gift. If you're wondering, what's that pain in my side? That's your wife confirming my suspicion. Um, I just miss stuff. I just kind of float along and go about my business. And uh, along with that gift, uh, I find relationships can be just tricky to figure out sometimes. Um, if I'm honest, I think my kind of emotional intelligence is pretty low. I, I, people surprise me. I don't understand what people are thinking. Uh, I, I'm often uh, kind of caught off guard by things relationally. Um, and it's not just me. People are hard to read. People are difficult. They, they, they do the unexpected. They, they get offended when we meant no offense or maybe we were just oblivious to something that we did that was offensive and all of a sudden they're pulled back. Uh, all of a sudden the relationship has changed and, and we weren't ready for it. We didn't see it coming. Uh, relationships are difficult. People are unpredictable and, and fickle. And I'm so glad that the Lord is not that way. How often are we guilty of taking that sense of insecurity that we have, of wondering and second-guessing, of trying to kind of feel out the relational instability, and putting that on God? Thinking of Him that way, wrongly directing it to our relationship with Him. Lord, are we okay? Are things all right between us? Did I offend you, God, unexpectedly? God, did you, did you withdraw? Are we still friends, God? Where did you go? God is not like us. He never leaves us to question where we stand with him, what he thinks of us, our relationship with here. No, in his, in his kindness, uh, he has made it so clear. He doesn't come and go based on emotions, on changing situations. Uh, and that's what I want us to see as we venture into Exodus 24 this morning. Um, we've been looking at the book of the covenant this gathered book of laws that the Lord handed down. Um, Today, I want us to see the Lord of the covenant. Um, So turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Exodus 24. If you don't have a Bible on you, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers is going to put one into that hand. We want you to have God's word open in front of you. So don't miss that. Put your hand up, get a Bible in your hands. And if you don't have a Bible um, that you can read easily at home, that is your own, Um, take this one home. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, But we want you to have God's word in front of you um, because I do not want you to leave here thinking, well, that's what John thinks. I don't don't care what I think. I hope you don't. Um, I want us to care what the word of God says and and trusting in his word and his truth. Uh, So as we go through this, I think we're going to see... the God who commands clearly, the God who cleanses sin, the God who communes with his people, and the God who confirms this great covenant. This is going to be our last sermon in Exodus for a little while. We're going to go back into Philippians next week. We'll be there through till Christmas, uh, and then we'll come back in after in the new year uh, and keep working our way through Exodus. Um, but this kind of wraps up this section of the book of the covenant If you remember, the Lord rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and and he, uh, with ten plagues, just utterly destroyed Egypt. He brought his people out. He parted the Red Sea and brought them across in in victory. He brought them now to Mount Sinai. He told them, I'm going to make you my treasured possession, my unique people, a kingdom of priests. And then he gave them uh, the Ten Commandments. They gathered around Mount Sinai, and the Lord spoke with smoke and fire and lightning from the mountain, the voice of the Lord thundered. And after hearing that, the people freaked out. We can't handle it. Lord, we don't want to hear directly from you. Moses, you go talk to the Lord and tell us what he says. We, we can't take it anymore. And so Moses went up the mountain and, and God gave him this, this book of the covenant, gave him these laws and so now, that's the end of, verse, of, of chapter 23, uh, and the Lord brings this book of the covenant down. Um, 
The book closes, as we saw last Sunday, the Lord motivating his people by blessing. See how good this will be. I I will be with you. I will strengthen you. I will defeat your foes on your behalf. I will bring you into the promised land. It's going to be so good as you walk according to my law. Embrace that blessing that I have for you. And then here in chapter 24, Moses is now presenting this book to the people. And this is like the the signing of the contract. This is the confirmation of this covenant as he stands before the people with the word of the Lord. So um, let me read chapter 24 for us and then we'll get into it. Then he said to Moses... Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up in the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is God's word. Would you join me as we pray together? Father, we need you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. But God, would you open our hearts now? God, we confess we come from busy weeks. Some of us come brokenhearted and discouraged, struggling with sin. Lord, we need you. We need to see you afresh this morning. Would you open our eyes? God, would you be at work through your word? Lord, I pray that you would take my words and that they might become background, that your word would be prevalent, God, and that you would work in my heart and all our hearts as we turn to your truth this morning, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in chapter 19, following the Ten Commandments, Moses went up the mountain, God gave him these laws, and then here the beginning of chapter 24 He's obviously come back down the mountain. He's here with the people. Verses one and two is is God then calling him back up the mountain. Um, I don't know about you. I grew up kind of thinking Moses went up and down the mountain twice. Um, I had to kind of skim through this. Uh, It's at least six times that he's up and down the mountain. And, uh, And here he is. He's just come down with the book of the covenant. And God says, come up again. 
This time bringing with him his brother Aaron, uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. This, that's the priesthood, right? Aaron is going to be the first official priest. Nadab and Abihu is his, his lineage. Uh, and then 70 elders, 70 of these leaders of the people. So a pretty big group. And they're supposed to come up the mountain, obviously not all the way up. The Lord says they're to worship from afar. So I think um, we see this, the mountain kind of gets divided into three partitions. If you remember, um, back before the Ten Commandments, they, they were to set a boundary around the foot of the mountain and no one was to cross that boundary. Nobody comes to the mountain. Everybody stands beyond those boundaries. Now here the priests and Aaron and his sons and these elders are invited to come up the mountain, at least partway, but only Moses, who plays the role of high priest, gets to go to the top of the mountain, gets to come all the way up to the presence of the Lord. These, these partitions, if you're watching, kind of show up again in the tabernacle and in the temple. But before Moses goes back up the mountain, he reminds Israel, this is the God who commands clearly. Verse three, Moses came and told the people, all the, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Um, that language is specific. Um, the words there um, is the Ten Commandments. That, that's how chapter 20 opens, giving the Ten Commandments. Um, God spoke all these words, and, and throughout the Old Testament, that's kind of shorthand for the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words. Um, and the rules then refers to the Book of the Covenant, these numerous laws that fill chapters 20 through 23. God is a God who commands, very clearly gives what is required. And I'm so grateful for that. He doesn't leave us guessing. How do we please him? That's, that's what the nations around them were subject to, right? With their gods. What do we need to do to please, please our God? How do we satisfy him? And they're always guessing and offering sacrifices and doing different things and wondering, what have we done to upset the gods so that our crops have failed? Or what have we done to, how can we appease the gods? And, and, and Yahweh comes and says, this is exactly what you are to do in great detail. They didn't see God's law as a burden. They saw it as a gift. They saw it as, as clarity that they so desperately wanted. We ought to see it that way. But as with so many things, they're, they're kind of two ditches that we fall into as humans when we come to the law of God, two ways that we kind of go off the rails. Um, on, on one hand, we, we go off the road as, as we look at the, the commands of the Lord and we say, that's how we become the people of God. Here's the commands of God. That's what we need to do in order to be God's people, in order to get to heaven. We need to do what's right and live according to his law, right? I want to be in God's favor, or people would simply say, I want to go to heaven. How do I do that? I need to obey the law. I need to do what's right. We see the law like a rope, a rope to be climbed up to get ourselves to God. I need to do better, work harder, be better. Then, then I'll have God's favor. Then I'll be welcomed into heaven. Here's the problem. Listen carefully, James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law, think about that statement, keeps the whole law, but fails at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That's crushing. That's absolutely debilitating. The law is like a rope. Imagine hanging from the rope of the law over God's judgment. And you say, my rope is good. It's made of good sturdy material. It's, it's nice and thick. It's a solid rope. It's only cut through in two places. What good is your rope? It's no good at all. If the rope is to be any value, it has to be 100% intact. Theoretically, you can be in God's favor by fulfilling the law, theoretically. But you have to keep all of it perfectly. To break one law is all it takes to become a lawbreaker. And then that way is closed to you. And the bad news continues. David speaks for all of us, Psalm 51.5, when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. He, he's not talking about his mother's sin. 
He's saying since the fall of Adam, since Adam's first sin, we humans are born into this rebellion against God. It's, it's weaved into our very heart, our nature. We're sinful by birth. It's how we think. It's who we are. And so this idea that our actions on the exterior our obedience to God will get us any closer to God when, when in our very hearts we are a sinful, rebellious people. It's folly. It's hopelessness. And actually, it's, it's an offense against God because it, it's dismissive about his law and his holiness. On the contrary, notice the order of how things happen for Israel. First, he saves them. Then he gives them the law. God is so intentional in, in making this clear. Exodus 20, before he gives the Ten Commandments, this is like this kind of uh, inseparable, intentional introduction to the Ten Commandments. So you can never read the Ten Commandments without first reading this first verse. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First, I rescued you. First, I made you my own. Before you had the law, before you knew the law, before anything else, I saved you. Only then did I give my law. There's one way to be saved. One way to be made right with God. And it's not doing good. Hear that. It is not living a better life. We're saved by grace. It's God's kindness in spite of our unworthiness. In Israel's case, God had already promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your descendants will be my people. I will rescue them. I will bring them out of slavery. I will bring them to the promised land. So chapter two of Exodus, when Israel cries out to God, God heard their cry. Your part in, in closing the gap between you and God is not making yourself better and, and climbing up to him. It's admitting your absolute inability to do just that. Your desperate need for rescue and to cry out to him. That's faith. God, I need you. I can't do that. I am a sinful mess. I deserve your wrath. I need you to save me. That's our only hope. We're saved by faith not by the law. So why the law then? Why does he give these 10 commandments, these numerous other laws? Well, this is the other ditch that we fall into. Others would say, well, there really is no purpose for the law other than to show us that we're sinners. And so they emphasize the fact that we're, we're saved by grace through faith. And they're absolutely right on that. I'm 100% on board. But they take that all the way to say, let's just take the laws of God and set them aside. That doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. Just call on the Lord. That's all you need. Just, just pray this prayer. Just say these words and it's done. You don't need to do anything more. You're saved. No questions asked. Just go on with your life and forget about what God demands. That's not important. You're saved by grace. That's not the picture Scripture paints either. He does rescue Israel by his grace, not based on anything in them, but then he gives them the law. He says, this is how you are to live. This is what it means to be my people, having been rescued by grace, now walk in obedience. Now, of course, we know, as we've talked about this, that Old Testament law is Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. We're under Christ. We're looking at New Testament law in our context. But he says, this is what it means to be my people. Yes, you're, you're saved by grace through faith through just trusting in Jesus. But what does that trust actually look like over time? James 2.17 says, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Faith that is spoken with the mouth, but doesn't produce a life of obedience, is a stillborn faith. It's not true faith. It's an empty, shallow, and false faith. 
to say with the mouth, yes, I trust you, but then not follow that up with actions of actual trust and obedience is foolishness. Look at this parallel that, that Jesus paints. He says, John 3:36, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see the contrast? The opposite of believing is failure to obey. Therefore, the act of believing includes obedience. We're saved by faith, by calling out on God in, in our unworthiness, by crying out to Him to rescue us. But, but true faith that actually saves will always, sometimes slowly, sometimes messy and stumbling and ugly, but always over time produce fruit, produce evidence of a, a transformed life. A change from the heart. God does make commands, many of them. He's not shy about that. And we ought to embrace them. We ought to be thankful that he tells us, here's how to live in a way that honors me. Here's what pleases me. Man, isn't this our biggest frustration with women, right? Just tell me what to do. Just tell me the right thing to say and I'll say it. What is it? I can't read your mind, right? God's not like that. He says, here's what I want. This is it. God graciously communicates clearly to us. And the people of Israel eagerly declare, all the, law, all the words the Lord has spoken, we'll do it. We're in. We want to do it. We want to honor God. Now, did they do it perfectly? No, not by a long shot. But they understand to be God's people, to have been rescued by him, means to then walk in his law. I embrace that, that he's the God who commands clearly. But he's also the God who cleanses sin. He commands clearly, but he cleanses Sin. Look at verses 4 to 8 with me. Let me read these again for us. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So having told the people of the commands of the Lord, and hearing them respond eager to obey, Moses then wrote them down. He, this is the second time in the book of Exodus um, that we're explicitly told Moses wrote it down in his book. There, there are still debates in the scholarly world about who wrote the book of Exodus, and there's all these intelligent-sounding papers written. But if you actually read the book, it tells us. So if it's true, um, Moses wrote it, and here it is. But Moses built uh, an altar and 12 pillars. These pillars were uh, reminders for the people. We, we sing the song, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, and it has the, the line, Here I raise my Ebenezer. That's what this is. It's an Ebenezer. It's a, it's a pillar uh, of stone or a large pile of stones that's put there as a reminder for generations to come of some significant event. And by the context here, it would seem that these 12 pillars uh, were to remind each of the 12 tribes of Israel they had agreed to this covenant. They had accepted the commands of the Lord. Think about it maybe like a wedding ring. It's this physical symbol of this covenant that they had made. And then on the altar, they sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings of oxen. Verses 6 to 8 we'll look at now. That talks about the burnt offering. And in verses 9 to 11, we'll get to in a minute, that talks about the peace offering. So the burnt offering was, as the name implies, burnt. The whole thing um, was put on the altar and consumed by fire, everything except the blood that was drained as it died. And it's all given to the Lord. 
the burnt offering has one purpose. It's to cleanse sin. From the very beginning, the Lord had told Adam and Eve, if you sin, if you disobey me, it will result in death. You will die. Of course, we know the story. Adam did disobey God. And there was an immediate spiritual death, a relational death between them and God and actually between one another as well. And Adam and Eve feel for the first time shame. And they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. When the Lord found them, what did he do? The Lord himself personally brought about the first death in this world. The Lord killed an animal and he used its skin to clothe Adam and Eve, to cover their shame. A life for a life. Central to this imagery of the life given was the blood. Later, Leviticus 17.11 will expand, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the the life is in the blood. That's the, the symbolism here. The animal was killed by slitting its throat and Moses takes half the blood and puts it in a basin and sets it aside. Half the blood he he throws on the altar. The blood that he puts in the basin, we see later, he, he sprinkles on the people, which is gross, but significant. And we'll get to that. But the first blood goes against the altar. And this symbolizes the effect that the sacrifice has on God. What effect does the sacrifice have toward God? And the theological term here is propitiation. It satisfies God's judgment. All sin is primarily against God. He is himself the very definition of all that is good and true and right. He is the law. So when we sin, when we break the law of God, we don't break some kind of abstract law. We offend God personally. And God is righteous and just and holy, and so there must be payment. Justice must be done. And the blood is that payment. The blood satisfies God's justice, his judgment. There is sin and sin demands death, and the blood shows that a death has happened to pay for the sin, that that God's justice has been satisfied. That's propitiation. The rest of the blood then is taken and thrown on the people. And it addresses the effect that, that our sin has on us, the guilt of sin, the shame of sin, the stigma, the, the, the filthiness that it leaves behind. And it was the blood sprinkled on the people that said, by the death of this sacrifice, your guilt is washed away. As the skin of that first sacrifice covered the shame of Adam and Eve, so the blood of this sacrifice covers your shame. Your sin is wiped away. So in the days and weeks to follow this event, as the people looked and saw the blood stains on their hands and their clothing, they didn't feel dirty. They felt clean. Theological word here is expiation. It's our sin removed from us. And though Moses would make the sacrifice, it's the Lord who sets this up. It's the Lord who is making a way for a sinful people to come to a holy God. He's the God who cleanses sin. It's the Lord cleansing his people, rescuing them from the judgment of sin and purifying them from the guilt of sin. And Moses says, behold, the blood of the covenant That the Lord has made with you. This blood is God satisfying his judgment and cleansing his people. And yet the question lingers really? An ox? Does that work? The death of an animal is enough to cover sin? No. No, and it was never intended to be. They didn't have all of the pieces of the puzzle. They were walking by faith, but they knew that God would one day send his rescuer. 
He would send the one that he had promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, he promises that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent, who will do away with sin and death and undo the curse of sin. And they're waiting for that day. And so this sacrifice is an act of faith, trusting that God will one day deal with sin that way. We don't know how, we don't know what it's going to be, but it's gonna, this is a, a symbol of it. But the rescuer is coming. And Matthew 26, 27, Jesus sat around the Passover meal with his disciples. And he took a cup. And we'd given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He, he goes back to, to Exodus 24. He's right here. And he's saying, this is my blood of the covenant. And so this, this Passover meal that Jesus hijacks that becomes the Lord's Supper is, is obviously, yes, pointing back to all the symbolism of Passover and all that we worked through there in April, but also this covenant confirmation. This is the new covenant and my blood does what the blood of the, of the oxen and the bulls and the lambs for, for a thousand years pointed forward to, I accomplish it. I'm the one who truly satisfies the justice of God. I'm the one who actually wipes sin away. And on the cross then, Jesus would actually pay the penalty for our sin. Not symbolically, not metaphorically, not potentially, but actually bear the judgment of God for our sin on himself. And he would be the one whose blood would actually cleanse those who trust in him. Believer, our God is the God who cleanses. The God of whom David said, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. What a hope. What an amazing thing. Do you have confidence in that? <clears throat> Think back. Maybe it's not far back to the sin and rebellion that you once lived in. Or maybe the last time you stumbled and fell even flat on your face as we so often do, ignoring his commands, ignoring that he's the fountain of living water and running off into sin. And you wake up like the prodigal son laying in the mud alongside the pigs. Maybe that's where you find yourself even this morning. Even there, you ought to have absolute confidence our God is the God who cleanses sin. That doesn't change. That doesn't fluctuate day by day. Romans 7, we find Paul struggling with his own sin. And you can just feel his frustration. Verses 18 and 19, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want. This is what I keep on doing. Anybody identify with that? Oh, I know what I should be doing. And this sin just keeps rearing its ugly head. Things come out my mouth and I wish they hadn't. Verse 24, he cries out to God in desperation. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers it. Praise God, he answers it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what leads him then into chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Christ, our perfect sacrifice has been killed. His blood has satisfied the judgment of God and washed away the guilt of our sin. It's done. It's completely finished. Stop and think. What's the most recent sin that weighs heavy on your conscience? Bring it to mind. I'm not suggesting we're okay with it. I'm not suggesting that we take sin lightly. We want to be pursuing holiness. We ought to be walking in repentance. But not shame. Not guilt. Not fear of judgment. 
not wondering where did God go now? Have I walked too far? As if his relationship with us fluctuated back and forth or changed without warning. No, he's told you there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All of those who, like Israel in their slavery in Egypt, would cry out to God and say, God, save me. And come to him in true faith. He says, it's done. That penalty is paid. Your sin, past, present, and future, was on the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that happens that surprises him now. There's no guilt or shame left for you to bear. That's of your own making. Walk in that forgiveness, in the blood of the new covenant. That's what communion is meant to remind us of over and over again. That's why we want to do it often. It's the blood of the covenant poured out for you. Our God is the God who commands clearly and also the God who cleanses sin. And that cleansing then opens the way for him to be the God that communes with us. Look at verses 9 to 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Nestled quietly in this often forgotten chapter is this shocking event. Having made the sacrifice and sprinkled the blood... Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and these 70 elders embark up the mountain. Remember, it wasn't long ago they were fleeing from the mountain in fear. Now up they go with trembling, no doubt. And they saw the God of Israel. This is not a small thing. Uh, Exodus 33 will come to uh, after Christmas. The Lord says to Moses, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live you say, well, what happened? How did they, how did they live? The, the text even right here is surprised by it. Verse 11 says, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. Why does it say that? Because he should have. Because they should have been dead. They saw God and they survived. It's interesting, they, they don't describe God. It doesn't actually say anything about what the Lord looks like. All they tell us is, what's under his feet. Maybe that's all they saw. But even under his feet is pavement of sapphire stone clear as the sky. It's breathtaking beauty and majesty and wonder. And here's the climax. They beheld God and they ate and drank. This is the God who communes with his people. The the holy and righteous God has dinner with them. The burnt offering was totally consumed on the altar. The peace offering was split. Some of it went to the Lord and the rest was eaten by the one who had brought it. And they shared a meal together with the Lord. In the Eastern culture, this was the height of of personal fellowship, of, of relational unity. This is so significant. The the display of of unity and peace between two parties is that they would sit down and, and eat a meal together. This is a God who doesn't just cleanse his people, but he comes down to commune with them, to spend time with them, to be with them. He invites them into his presence. And this imagery of the meal continues to grow throughout scripture. Here in Exodus, we have the Lord eating with his people. Isaiah will prophesy in in chapter 25 on this mountain. Now he's talking about Mount Zion. The Lord of hosts will make for all people 
A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. One day there will be a feast not only for Israel, but for all the people, people of every nation. Jesus came. God made visible. The full revelation of who God is. In him, the fullness of deity dwells. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he sat down and ate with tax collectors and sinners, with the outcasts, the despised. He went up onto a mountain, fed 5,000 people. This wasn't just showing off. This isn't random miracles. This isn't about social justice and how we ought to feed people. This is Exodus 24. It's imagery. He's saying, I am the God who, who wants to dwell with you. And then as he approached the climax of his ministry, his sacrificial death on the cross, what was his last big move? What does he leave behind for us to remember him by? It's a meal. It's a feast. And yes, again, it's significant as the Passover meal and it's significant as the the blood of the covenant of the God who cleanses, but it's also the peace offering, the fellowship meal. They have fellowship with Jesus. They partake together eating and drinking of what? The sacrifice. This is my body broken for you. They have fellowship with Jesus. They partake of a meal together in the presence of God. God is saying, I will be with you. I will have close personal relationship with you. You and I are at peace together. Our relationship is healed and secure. Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, saying, continue this. Do this regularly. As the church, in the presence of God, eat and drink Together, together with one another and together with the Lord. Remembering God is not like a fickle friend who comes and goes, who who suddenly withdraws and pulls back, goes quiet, who unexpectedly removes himself from a relationship. No. Now he's the God who is with us. And unlike so much of what Christ fulfilled from the Old Testament, the Lord's Supper, as the peace offerings, the fellowship meal, is not the culmination of it. This is not the height of it. It's continuing to point forward. Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's looking forward. He's pointing to something greater still, reminding us that every time we eat and drink together, the best is yet to come. Revelation 19 looks forward to that day. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His bride has made Himself ready, herself ready. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a feast in the presence of God. That's what we ultimately look forward to. Communion, the Lord's Supper reminds us regularly that the presence of God will one day come in full. But it is also here now. He's promised to be with us, to fellowship with us along the way. Do you know him that way? Do you have that close personal fellowship with God? Do you open his word in the morning? Read it. As his letter to you. Do you respond to him in in prayer that's not just rote memory, but that's actually talking to God, actually communing with him in a way that's real and personal? When you come to the Lord's Supper, is this just a hollow kind of exterior habit that we do? 
Or is it a time of close fellowship, of personal communion with God? God hasn't moved. God is here for us. He is with you. If you feel far from God and distant, if you feel like like he's withdrawn, it's not God that's moved. He's called you. He's cleansed you. And he's here to commune with you. He has not and will not withdraw. He's the God who, who commands clearly, who cleanses sin, the God who communes with his people. And then finally, he is the God who confirms this covenant. There's a lot going on in these last verses, but I think that's the heart of it. Let me read verses 12 to 18 for us. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone which the law and the command, uh, with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord called Moses further up. Come into the mountain. Come to the top to give him the tablets of stone, to give him the law and the commandments written in stone by the finger of God. And Moses left Aaron and Hur, who must have been one of the elders, in charge, and they entered into the cloud, the top of the mountain. It's during this time... Moses on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Presumably the Lord miraculously sustained him through that time. And here God would give him uh, the tablets of stone, but also the instructions for the tabernacle that fill chapters 25 to 31. But verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Verse 17, the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain and all the people saw it. It's confirmation. It's this visible symbol of God's presence with his people for all to see. The glory descended confirms the covenant that he's made. It's God dwelling with his people. The purpose of the tabernacle was then to take Mount Sinai, take that glory and make it portable, that it would go with them. And then as they finish building the tabernacle, Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And they, that, that glory of the Lord in the tabernacle travels with them until they get to the promised land and they get established. And finally, Solomon builds the temple. In 2 Chronicles 7.1, as soon as Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's Sinai traveling with them and landing in the temple. It's that confirmation of the covenant. What about the new covenant? We don't have a temple. Temple was destroyed and never rebuilt. Where does the glory of the Lord reside now? How has the Lord confirmed this new covenant? Acts 2, day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends as tongues of fire and rests on each of them. Ephesians 2 expands on that. Verse 19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is talking to the nations brought in now to the covenant. 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation, the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together. Listen to this, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. It's us. As believers, and specifically as the church, we are the new Sinai, the new tabernacle, the new temple, as Christ dwells in us. They had God's glory with them. We have God's glory in us. He is our confirmation by His Spirit. Ephesians 1 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit in you is the confirmation of this covenant. The guarantee. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Now, there are exterior signs of that. Galatians 5.22, the fruit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But there's also that inner witness, the Holy Spirit confirming in our spirit, giving us confidence that we are, in fact, children of God. It's the presence of God dwelling in us giving us that confidence of of peace with God, that that we're his, convicting us of sin, confirming his covenant as we walk more and more in joyful obedience to his commands, as we live more and more confident in his cleansing and his sacrifice, as we abide more and more in this personal communion that he's given to us, we find this growing confirmation that we're his. He's with us. And his covenant has been made and it does not change. Our relationship with him, our position before him doesn't doesn't shift, doesn't falter, doesn't come and go. His love for us, his heart toward us doesn't move. That's the Lord of this covenant. I want to close this morning reminding ourselves of these things the way Jesus taught us to celebrating communion together. So I'll invite the